we define success in many different ways. And each one of us, I think, has a slightly different definition of success. It could be success based on how many likes that you have, how much money you have in your bank account. It could be whether or not you've paid off your mortgage or maybe your student loans. It could be about how many children that you have or how many people follow you or how many friends you have, how much influence, how much power that you have. I mean, for many of us, we we have these definitions of success that we're trying to emulate, that we're trying to follow. But the question is, is such a definition biblical? Is that God's definition for us for success? I've seen Christians try to take success, worldly success, and put it with Christian under Christian labels. I've seen pastors try to say, hey, we're reaching people for the gospel, but yet all they're checking about is how many followers that they have, uh, maybe how many books that they've written, how many people go to their conferences or whatever, and that's how they're gauging success. I know of one pastor, he said, uh, and, and it's, it's a shameful thing, but he said, if I put this out there in this issue, I'm going to get more web traffic to my website. That's a reality. Is people, we all have this different definition of success, and today especially, we have this social media crazed idea of getting success, of getting influence, of being bigger and bigger, and everybody seeing how great we are and how wonderful we are. But is that the definition that God has for us? Because the reality is, is many of us have a very shattered view of what success is, and we are trying to live after this definition and this, this, this ideal that really isn't what God has for us. It's more, it's more influenced by the world than it is by the word. So today we want to jump in and look at the life of Saul. And Saul is this very, very strange, odd figure, a very double-minded man. He, he starts off great with so much promise and with so much hope on what he could be. And yet he, he goes downhill so quickly and we see him just the, the end of his life in a very tragic way. So we're going to be looking at his life. We're not going to look at it exhaustively. We're going to be looking at a few episodes. We're going to start in First Samuel, First uh, Samuel, excuse me, chapter thirteen. We'll be moving back and forth between twelve, fourteen, fifteen, maybe into to nine a little bit. But we're going to look at his life and we're going to see and ask ourselves the question: Was Saul a success? Yeah, I mean, I've talked about his ending, but there's some times where we look at him and say, "Wait a minute, he looks successful, but really is he in the sight of God?" So let's think about that for ourselves. Does God see my life as successful? What does God say about me? What does God have for me today? And what do I perhaps need to change in my mind and how I live to be a success in his sight? Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer, ask for his blessing on our message time. Father, we pray that you speak to us today for the glory of your name, that we might go forth changed. May your word be a, a surgical instrument, may it be a surgical scalpel, cutting out the cancer of unbelief from our lives for your glory and our joy. Pray your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's really jump in uh, to our uh, text. Or actually, not before our text. I want to lay some groundwork first before we get into our text. I want to see and look at the definitions of success. So let's call that up, the definitions of success. And we're going to see that there are really, after everything is said and done, there's really two definitions of success that we go back and forth between. The first one is the world's definition of success. And this is a very broad term. Uh, And I'm going to define it this way for us. The world defines success in this way. Let's call that up here for a second. The world defines success as the ongoing pursuit of all that I want to be and do. The ongoing pursuit of all that I want to be and do. Do we have that on the screen there? 
We don't have that. Okay. It is the ongoing pursuit of all that I want to be and do. That's the world's definition of success. And what that means is you want more power, you want more prestige, you want more money, you want more beauty, you want more strength, you want more acclaim, you want everybody to talk about your ability and how great you are. I mean, it could be for anything. It could be for your, uh, your ability just to get attention. It could be your, uh, your strength, your athletic ability, or your intelligence. It could be for anything, and it's about getting, 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 and it's about I. I is the center of everything that goes on. Joe Rogan, he uh, used to be host, MTV host, and uh, he's an MMA fighter. He made this thing in this video that talks about making a movie of your own life, be the center or be the, you know, live your own life and basically be the star of your own movie. It's just highlighting more self. A good friend of mine uh, wrote a, did a video in response. He's an evangelist. And he said, it's not about us being the center of our own movie. It's about have God being the star of our own movie. Let God be that center. See, that's the, that's the word's definition of success. We have the world's definition, and this is the word's definition. The word defines it this way. Biblical success is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and do. And listen to me. Biblical success is the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and do. So notice the first one. The first one had I want to be and do. The other one has God wants me to be and do. Now notice there's two parts of that. It's ongoing pursuit, meaning that we are to continually grow in that endeavor. It's, we're never just going to attain it and we're done. I've seen some people say, I'm a spiritually perfected Christian. And I'm like, you are spiritually deluded. You're not going to be perfect. Not on this side of eternity. It's the ongoing pursuit of it. Yes. And it's not just what we do, but what, who we are. It's what's known as orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What I believe and understanding and who I am, and it shapes me on the inside. And then orthopraxy, how I live that out, what I do with that. So God cares about who you are as a person and the actions that you do and the works that you do. And so biblical success is, is understanding that it's the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and do. Now, if we're, we have this definition, we have to understand what we're saying and what we're not saying. I mean, we have to unmask because there's many things that come at us that try to disguise themselves as success, biblically speaking. And we have to unmask the disguises of biblical success. We have to unmask the disguises of biblical, uh, I mean, not of biblical, excuse me, of worldly success. There's a lot of things that come at us that try to disguise themselves as success. Now, that's what we can look, like, look at with Saul. Saul is the king that the people wanted. Remember, they rejected, uh, they rejected Samuel's advice. Samuel uh, was advocating you know, God being their king, living in a theocracy. And they said, no, we want a king, and we want to be like the other nations. So Saul really is that king. And in their mind, this is what a success should be like. So we're going to look at Saul. And when we, when we are looking at Saul, um, just like they did, we do too. We have this ability to look at a person, and then we put a series of tests in our mind on whether or not this person is qualified or not. We do this with presidential uh, candidates, by the way. When we look at someone debating, we ask ourselves many questions. Some of it's about what it is that they're advocating, but oftentimes, if we're real with ourselves, we don't really think that deeply about it. Hopefully we do. 
But many times we look at ourselves and go, do they look presidential? Do they sound presidential? Do they look confident? Can they handle themselves in front of a microphone? We ask these things rather than the deep things. What is it that they're telling us? What is it that they're really saying and communicating to us? We get this feeling and we look at them and go, hey, they look the part. They act the part. Maybe they should be that part. And we have these tests that we apply in our mind. And I think the Israelites did that with Saul as well. And they're really, though, disguises of success. Consider the first one. First is the portrait test. The portrait test. Does he look like a king? Does that person look successful? What clothes are they wearing? What are they driving? Do they have the the portrait of success? Look at their home. I want to look at all these details of their life. Do they dress for success? Are they successful? And we have these questions, this portrait in our mind. And with Saul... Did he look like the king? And I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. I want you to flip back a couple chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're introduced to uh, Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 9. And it says, There was a man of Benjamin from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bukorath, the son of uh, Apaya, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, and he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. So, uh, or look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23 through 24. Uh, When they find Saul, after he's being appointed as king, it says, Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And God has chosen him basically on the criteria that the people had. This isn't God's like main first candidate, by the way. He's acquiescing to them and he's giving them what they want. This is the candidate they wanted. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So he's like taller and better looking than everybody else. So I'm thinking of like Chris Helmsworth right now. Is that the guy that played Thor? Is that Chris or Liam? Chris Helmsworth is the picture I have in my mind of Saul. Now you will be forever picturing Saul as, as Thor, or Thor as Saul. But this guy is better looking. He looks good. He's athletic. People look at him like, look at this guy. He is handsome. He is muscular. He is a leader. Look at this guy. And it's this portrait test that we apply. But we don't really know nothing about the person. We only look at the image, and in our image-saturated culture, and to many of us, that's all that matters. It really it is. I mean, think about it. Think about our past presidential uh, presidents. We will never probably see a, a president like Grover Cleveland or William Howard Taft again. These are very large men. And in our media-conscious culture with pictures all the time, our people, people just revolt against it. I mean, people have an idea in their mind. They have to fit even a certain body type and image. And, and people are like, well, they have to be ath- like athletic or skinny or whatever. It's these, these notions that the media have told to us. And now it used to be skinny, but now actually it's, they say that strong is the new skinny. That people want to look this certain way and they have to have this certain athletic build. And you even see presidential candidates walking around without their shirts off. I could care less what you look like without your shirt on. Personally, I don't see you conducting your office with your shirt off. And if you did, you definitely shouldn't be president. 
But this is the image that we have in our minds. We have this wrong understanding of things. We have this portrait test that we apply, and Saul passes. Next, we have the possession test. See, Samuel call, I mean, Saul comes from some means. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 9. He, the, this man uh, who is the son of Kish, and uh, the son of Kish, this Benjamite, has, he's a man of wealth in verse 1. Saul comes from money. He's got money. He's got the possessions. He's got the background. He's got the education, if you will. He comes from some means. He's not just some poor boy as he tries to put himself as, he is a guy that comes a little bit from money. And we put these tests in our minds. So we have the the portrait test, then we have the possession test. Does Does he have the right tools? Does he come from the right background? We also have the personality test. Now Saul does have some leadership ability. And do they have the personality that a king should have? Can they take charge? Do they seem confident? And there are times where Saul is commanding leaders and leading men. We see that, um, that he's rallying the people to himself in 1 Samuel chapter 11 as a threat comes on the country, and he'd already been appointed king, and he's getting men, and he's dividing them into divisions. So he looks like the part. He sounds like the part. And he passes the personality test. Then there is the position test that we employ. Position test. Do they, I mean, not just do they look it, but he actually becomes king, and we say, we'd look at him and go, he's a success because he has the title now. I mean, think about that. We say this all the time with different people. Their success, they must be because they're on TV, or they have a big church, or they have a great, a lot of money, or they have nice cars. Then we should listen to them. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus didn't have any of those things. He had no place to lay his head. He's a 33-year-old single Jewish man who had no place to lay his head, and he's the Lord and Savior of all. See, we've applied, we've taken all of these tools and we've put these, these tests and we try to put them on even the church. It reminds me of the story, I can't remember, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas who was walking and he was with the Pope, if I remember this correctly. And uh, the Pope says, he's quoting a passage from Acts and he's showing him all of this gold that's in the Vatican, all these different treasures and all of these different things that are there. And he, and, and he quotes from Acts where it says, we cannot say any longer silver and gold we do not have. And Thomas Aquinas wisely r- reports back and he goes, yes, but you also can't say anymore, stand up and walk. See, we've, we've traded one for the other. We've put all of these worldly definitions of success and we even put it and infiltrated it on the Christian walk and Christian life. And we somehow think that God wants everybody to have money, and God wants everybody to be healthy all the time. And it's like, yes, God wants you to have good health, but sometimes there are sicknesses that come into our life to glorify God's means of glorifying God, to help show us to be more dependent upon Him. I mean, God doesn't want you to have a Cadillac. Think of all the people in the world that are suffering. You just drive around and look what I have, and you don't. That's not, that's not what God has. We have to be careful for that. We can, even just so someone has a position, they have a title in front of their name or they have initials behind their name does not mean that they're a success in the sight of God. I know seminary graduates and guys with PhDs that are heretics from, well, great seminaries and Bible schools. Don't just say because someone went to Bible school, someone went to seminary, someone has a TV show that makes them a success. Biblically speaking, that's not it. I'm not saying that's wrong to have that. But I'm saying that's not the criteria that we are to employ. There's other criteria, and they can fit in that criteria and with those things. 
So it's not about the position that you hold or even the prizes that you have. See, he even won some victories. He led Israel to a few victories over the Philistines. He had some opportunities to flex. He'd earned some cred. When we see people with the prize, with the hardware, we automatically think of them as being successful. They have the victories, the W's, but does that mean that they are successful? See, I would make the, success, I would make the case that Saul was a big, giant, abysmal failure. I would make that case. Because he failed the one test that God employs. And this is it right here. Is God the priority of your life test? See, remember, Saul ends up being rejected because he doesn't obey God. God wasn't the priority. He had the fear of man. He had all these other ideas for himself. And he is rejected. And and even Samuel says to him, God is looking for someone after his own heart whose heart is focused on him. God is the priority of his life. You might have all of the outward stuff, but God has rejected you as king. He has removed you from your, and your lineage from continuing on because you have really rejected him by your disobedience. You pursued the wrong things. You've gained the world, but you've lost your soul. So we have to go back and say, what is the, this priority test? Is God first place? That's the priority test test that God has for us. Does God have your heart? That's the question. Does God have your heart? Does God have it? See, we need to see that what derails success. I mean, for Saul, he had, he had all the potential in the world, but we, we can look at his life and see what derailed him, what kept him from really pursuing God. So I would like to look at how how the, the facts that derail or the things that derail success. First of all, we're going to jump into our text here in 1 Samuel 13. We're going to be skipping through these. We have a large swath of Scripture, so forgive me if I'm not just focusing on one, uh, one verse specifically. But we are derailed by our present fears. Present fears. We see this a lot with Saul, that he is very much afraid. He is afraid of, of many different things. For example, he makes an offering in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I want to I set what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 13. In, in verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. Or Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, which is his son, who's the heir to the throne, by the way, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Uh, there was a very large army that he had, several thousand that we learned about in the, the chapters preceding. But he sends them home, and he keeps this contingency. But, of course, everything breaks out in the middle of it. See, what happens is, is Jonathan, in verse 3, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. Now, the Philistines had a Philistines and the Jews did not have a great relationship with one another. You can think of Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and you're getting an idea. They did not like each other. Peace was tenuous at times. And right now, Philistines had all the cards. They had chariots. They had iron tools, whereas the Israelites had nothing. They were basically subject to the Philistines. And it was tight, and they lived very near one another's borders. And so Jonathan, though, goes on a raid, and they defeat this garrison of uh, at Gibeah. And then it causes the Israelites to go, I mean, not the Israelites, the Philistines. They said, ha, huh, these guys who think they're going to take us, let's show them some shock and awe. So they get a big giant army. They come with the chariots. I mean, these are like tanks in the ancient world. And they come at uh, the, the Israelites. And Saul is freaked out. So he automatically retreats. And he realizes that he doesn't have a really great position. 
and he sees this army, which is like four or five times the size of his own, and he's very afraid. And his men start to desert. They actually cross over east of the Jordan River. They go, uh, and they leave Israel. Some are hiding in rocks and in caves. They're trying to get away from everybody. I mean, people are quaking in fear, and Saul is afraid. This is not what you want to have from your leader. You need to have a bold leader. And he's not being bold, nor is he being smart. He's afraid. And we see what happens there. The Philistines mustered uh, in verse 5 to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Now skip down to verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Now uh, Samuel had told him to wait seven days, and, and Saul was going to make a sacrifice, actually through Samuel. Only the priests were allowed to make sacrifices. Normal people like you and me weren't allowed to make sacrifices during this era. Only the priests could make an authorized sacrifice. Uh, before the Lord. And Saul was to wait on Samuel to make the sacrifice. And Samuel said, wait seven days. Now there were two sacrifices usually made in a day. There was the morning sacrifice and then there was the evening sacrifice. And the morning sacrifice comes, seven days goes, is, is gone by. He's entering into the last sacrifice for the day. And he's like, he's not showing up. We're going to miss the window. We got to do this. His men are deserting left and right. He doesn't know what to do. The army is right at the doors. He's like, we need God's blessing on this. So I'm going to make the offering. I'm going to make the sacrifice. And as he does so, Samuel shows up. Samuel shows up and goes, what? And you can see the smoke. What have you done? What have you done? Now, oftentimes when we have a question by a person of God within the scripture, the question is always to reveal the thought and intent of our heart. Like in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve has sinned, God shows up in the garden and says, where are you? The question wasn't that he didn't know. It was to show the depth of how far they had moved. And he's saying now, what have you done? In verse 11. But Saul says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Now notice the excuses that he makes of all, first of all. He says, when Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, I saw the people were scattering from me. That's the first reason I did this. I have good reasons, Samuel. The men were scattering from me. Secondly, it's not just that. You didn't come within the days appointed. You said you'd be here. So it's your fault too. And then that the Philistines, the army's right there. There's three reasons. I have three good reasons. And Samuel's like, no. In verse 3, 13, he says, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the, the word, or the Lord, kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, I want to skip over to chapter 15 for a moment. There's a similar situation that occurs. Samuel gives Saul some instructions. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over, is, over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what, uh, 
Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, before I go any further, you'd say, how could God be so harsh? God is the only one. We have to go back to his character and rest on his character. He is the only complete judge who knows every thought of intention of the heart, and, and he knows when to dispense justice and how to dispense justice. And there are times that he uses means to accomplish and dispenses justice. So he's saying, I know the choices that these people are going to make. I know that they are wicked all the way through, and I want you to eliminate them. I mean, you're going to be my means of judgment in this situation. You're going to be my hammer, if you will. And I want you to do exactly what I told you to do. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell him, 200,000 men on foot. See, he's got a big army and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt, when they were coming out of the Exodus. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following and following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, this is my favorite, one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Come back to that. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then do you, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amal- Amalek, and I devoted to the Amalekites, devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said to him, and just let me get through this for one moment. Has the Lord a great, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, than to listen in the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. See, for Saul, it's about fear. He fears man more than he fears God. See, that's what derails our success. And when we're more afraid of people than we are of God. 
when we care more about what the world says to us than what the Word says to us. It's our present fears. We always think to God, God, you don't know my present situation. You don't know what I'm dealing with right now. And God's saying, I want you to obey in the midst of it, to trust me no matter what. I want you to trust me. Because we think, God, you're not showing up. And God's there at the 11th hour. But he's waiting and he's purifying you to see if you trust in him in the midst of it. It's our present fears that derail our success. And it's also the possible pain that we might experience. The possible pain that we might experience. See, Saul is thinking that this army in first, uh, if we go back at the the chapters before, he's thinking the army, they're going to hurt us. They're going to kill us. They're going to take everything away from us. And it's fear and his imagination just goes off. See, when we don't rein in our imagination, when we let it just run rampant, we, all these fears begin to multiply, and we think, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? What will happen to us? What will happen? And we don't trust in God. And we don't discipline our mind. We don't bring it into submission. We're too busy being conformed to the world, but we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We're too worried about the possible pain that we might experience just as he was. But not only that, see, what else derails our, 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 our success is when we are partially obedient. Letter C. See, Saul, did you see what he did with the Amalekites? I mean, he does it first with, with Samuel. Samuel says, wait for the days, and he gets right to the 11th hour. That's seven days he thinks it's all passed, and he doesn't obey completely. Or with the Amalekites, and he says, I want you to devote everything to destruction. And he goes, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? He goes, I've done everything that God said. He goes, no, you haven't. He says, no, I, I, I spared him. I killed everybody else. Come on. I, I, I kept him, and I kept the choicest of the, the flocks to sacrifice to the Lord. I'm giving it to God. I, I got all this, and I'm giving it to God. That can't be that bad. I'm, I'm going to do it for the Lord. And he's like, no, you didn't do what God told you to do. What is God telling you to do, and how are you being partially obedient? See, God's saying, I want all of it. If it's partially obedient, then it's disobedient. See, we think to ourselves, a little bit's better than nothing, right? But God is saying to us, no, you can't just be partially obedient. I want everything. We have this tendency to rationalize our sin. Oh, I'll I'll give this money to God that I'm going to cheat on my taxes for. Or I'm going to take this and I'll give it to God. Or I'm going to keep back this offering to the Lord. I'm going to buy something else that will go for ministry there. We, we have all these rationalizations and that we come to ourselves, and these excuses that we, we use to keep ourselves from being completely obedient. See, Saul, that's what was going on with him. He was partially obedient, but he wasn't completely obedient. And that's why Samuel tells him in verse 22 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He doesn't care about your sacrifice. He cares about your obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience, the obedience card trumps the sacrifice card. In every hand you play. As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. See, presumption is as iniquity. Presuming upon God is as danger, dangerous as iniquity in idolatry. See, Saul is partially obedient, not completely obedient. Where have you partially obeyed God? Does God have your heart? 
He doesn't just want part of it. He will keep on pushing. He won't let go until he has your heart. Don't try to hold on to it. He must have it all. He will not accept partial obedience. If it is partial obedience, then it's disobedience. Where have you been holding back? What is God calling you to do? Have you, I mean, what relationship have you been holding on to? Where have you been uh, giving to God? What are you holding back from him? What shows have you been watching? What websites have you been going to? What are you putting before your eyes? What have you been doing? Have you given God your heart? See, it wasn't just his partial disobedience, his partial obedience, though, that short-circuited his success. It was his pride in himself, his pride in himself and his own abilities. See, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. He made a monument for himself. He believed so much in his own abilities, even though he was a failure and he was afraid. I mean, even at the beginning when he is called and they say, where's Saul at? After they're getting ready to anoint him as king, he's hiding among the baggage. He's afraid. But yet he still believes that he's the man. He sets up a monument for himself. See, the pride that we have in our own abilities to do what we want to do or get things done that we think we could be done or we're the center. We're the, we're the stars of our own movie. It's our own pride. We won't humble ourselves, and God is saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. See, the reality is, is pride is, is very, very much blinding. It's competitive. See, I like this quote by C.S. Lewis I'd like to show, share with you. C.S. Lewis writes, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed with someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It, it is competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride goes, gets no pleasure of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking or getting more Instagram likes or more hits or more video, YouTube videos viewed. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking or more athletic or whatever. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's our pride in ourselves that derails us from being a success in the sight of God when we won't humble ourselves and we hold on to our own sin. Another thing that derails success, and there's much we could go into in these passages, but it's this phony repentance. Phony repentance. See, after Samuel had confronted Saul, Saul responds in verse 24 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, I have sinned, at least he can admit that much. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that, that I, with me that I may bow before the Lord. He sounds like he's repentant, right? But is he? Let's look and see. Look at verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. See, look, he doesn't say, he's not humiliating himself. Like when David, he is fasting, he is, call, he is sorrowful, he is broken. Saul's like, I've sinned, but come back with me and honor me before the people. It's, it's, you know what? It's, it, I, I sinned against God, but in front of these guys, uh, let it be okay, okay? Long as I don't have to lose face in front of the people, we're all good. I can sin against God. I'll, I'll, you know, I confess, Lord, forgive me, and then we go on. But see, he's, David is the other example. He's broken. See, the Bible talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, Saul is just an example of everything we should not do. See, we look at him, and from all earthly perspective, he looks like a success. But in the sight of God, he's a big, giant failure. And we have to reorient ourselves and go back to that biblical definition of success. And I want us to end our time today from looking at Proverbs chapter 3. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. And, and we can see what God is telling us this, in this wisdom literature that is for us. Um, he is showing us and giving us how we can develop or what it, the development of successful living looks like in the sight of God. How can we develop? How can we truly be successful? I mean, we have to reorient our definition of what success is. I'm just going to give you three, real, three ways to show that we can be, how we can be successful in the sight of God. Now, there are many, but there are three that we're going to look at today. The first one, as we can look at this passage, uh, let me read it for you. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Then he says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of the Lord, or, or God and man. In other words, when he says, take my commandments, my teaching, hold it on, write it on the tablet of your heart. In other words, treasure God's word. Treasure God's word. Without God's word, we have nothing. I don't know how many times that I, I can say that because we, without God's word, we have nothing. Nothing. There's no use arguing in the public square. You can convince people, but it's God's word that shows us. When you depart from the word of God, you, you will embrace anything. Just this past uh, last two weeks, you had some clergy, and I put clergy loosely just because they might have reverend in front of them, and they might belong to a mainline denomination, that they came together in their clergy garb, and they blessed abortion. They blessed the murder of babies. They blessed it said, oh, God is great with this. Now, when you look at those denominations that they're a part of, they have departed from God's word. God values life. He values life intricately. When I see these people calling themselves clergy, I, I, my heart breaks because I'm like, if anyone even thinks that they are a people, God, they are so deluded. And, and they've been deceived. When we turn away from his word, any and every lifestyle becomes tolerated. It's the word of God that regulates and brings us back and shows us the pathway of righteousness to his namesake. So we have to treasure his commands. Secondly, we must make sure that we trust God more than self. That's why we look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 
5 and 6. Everyone, I mean, so many Christians know this verse, memorized it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord more than yourself. See, we have a tendency to go on our feelings. And our feelings are very subjective. Our feelings change with how much sleep we get, how well we ate, what someone said to us right before we walked in the room, whether our cell phone is working, how much traffic we went through, how much we get paid. All of these things affect our feelings. Our feelings are subjective. They're changing. Wouldn't you rather trust in something that is objective, that never changes? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, do not change. God himself in his nature, in his person, has not changed ever and will not. When people say, oh, God is changing now, God is saying that you can do these things that have been condemned over the last 2,000 years, but he's okay with it now. We've advanced as a people. Hold on to that which has never changed. Trust God more than ourselves. And lastly, look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Turn away from evil. That's it. Turn away from evil. Turn away from the evil that God has, I mean, that the, the world throws at us each and every day in everything that we go through. There is evil all around us. It's on the Internet. It's in our homes. It's, at, it's everywhere we go in our schools, our workplaces. And when we see it, we, we want to reach the world by being in the world. We're not to be of the world. We need to make sure that when we do see evil that we don't embrace that and partake in it. And then we will have healing to our flesh. Notice that. I love that in in verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 3. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So, hopefully we've changed our definition of success. It's not about the likes we get. It's not about how much we can achieve, what we can accomplish in this world. It's being what God wants us to be. It's the ongoing pursuit of all that God wants me to be and do. And if if I can do that, and God wants me to be good at something, to be great at something, and that's glorifying him, then so be it. But let's follow his definition of success, not our own, not what the world tells us to do, but what the word tells us to do, because there is fullness of joy 